In my respectful view, when DFO has simultaneous mandates to conserve wild stocks and promote the salmon farming industry, there are circumstances in which it may find itself in a conflict of interest because of divided loyalties. When Justice Bruce Cohen released his report at the end of October 2012, he'd spent months hearing from scientists, First Nations, fishermen, environmental groups, citizens and government bureaucrats. His mandate was to try to figure out why the wild salmon didn't return to spawn in 2009. His report was three volumes, almost 1,200 pages with 75 recommendations. But he couldn't answer that question. Going back to the long-term decline, some, I suspect, hoped that our investigation would find, quotes, the smoking gun, a single cause that explained the two-decade decline in productivity. That notion is appealing, but improbable. Justice Cohen said at least some of the blame belonged to the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans. He said the department had known for years the wild salmon population was declining and had done very little to look into it. So he recommended the fish farms in the Discovery Islands be closed by September 2020, unless it was proven they posed a minimal risk to the wild salmon that migrate past them. It put the government and the fish farms on notice. They had eight years to prove they were safe or prepared to leave. But the phrase minimal risk became their get out of jail card. Welcome to the Salmon People podcast. I'm Sandra Bartlett. This podcast is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. We're crowdfunding to cover the cost of the podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can find a link in the show notes telling you how. This is Episode 9, Minimal Risk. The Broughton Archipelago is off Vancouver Island from Port McNeil. It consists of dozens of small, mostly uninhabited islands. Echo Bay, where Alex used to live, is one of the few inhabited ones. Those misty islands over there, that's the Broughton Archipelago. And they just stopped going in there. In 1992, approximately, they began... On this day, I'm walking with Alex Morton on the beach near her home on Malcolm Island. And after all these years, the whales have come back. And the female that was leading the group now, because the matriarchs that were leading it have died of natural, you know, they just got old and died. But she remembered. <laughs> and she was just, she was a young, was a young girl. She remembered and she took her family in. And that is the greatest reward I could possibly get is to actually make it better for them so that they came back to their traditional territory. I think I see a whale out in the distance, and we stop. It's probably those sea lions. I saw white. You saw white. Okay. So this is the thing about <laughs> studying whales. Most of the time, you're just staring at water. <laughs> I kind of envy the people that study anything else, like, elephants or gorillas. You can follow their tracks, you can look at their scat, see what they ate. You can find This beach nests. also brings back a memory. Uh, last night my husband was alive. We camped here with our little boy. 
Where did you camp? Right on the flat beach. We knew the tide wasn't really big, so we wouldn't get wet that night. We did that a lot. We followed whales till dark and then camped. It's quite a memory to have that last night. It is. It's an old memory, though, you know, and I'm so grateful for him, you know, dropping me off in this amazing place. I would have just carried on to Alaska, which in many ways <laughs> I wish I had because I would be studying whales all this time. And I often wonder what I would know about their sounds and their communication after all these years. But this. Her supporters would say what she did with like wild me. salmon in BC was equally important. Bringing attention to a problem, doing the science, encouraging others to join her. I feel useful. And if First Nations hadn't stepped up, it had been a wasted life. But I was able to hold place until they were able to turn their attention to this, along with everything else they're dealing with. Really, they made my whole life uh, useful because now they're dealing with government. They're making the changes. The groundbreaking agreement gave the Namgis, the Kwikwasutanu, Kwawamish, and the Mamalilakwala First Nations the right to approve or end fish farm operations in their territories. And they put their new powers into motion, getting Maui and Surmac to agree to remove seven fish farms out of a sensitive wild salmon highway in the Broughton Archipelago. When Alex heard the first fish farm was leaving, she had to see it. It was the middle of winter, and it was a calm day, and I roared up there in my speedboat. Oh, it was still there. But I went up to it closely, and all the anchors had been pulled, like the net anchors were all sitting on the walkways, and there was no nets, and the houses were gone, and there were seals lying all over the pen structure and birds, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. This was what Alex had been fighting for. And a few months later, I went back, and there was just water. That was an incredible feeling, this whole industrial operation that had killed millions of wild salmon was gone. I know the bottom was covered in their waste, but the surface was clean again, and I just could not believe the feeling. And just as she'd been doing for more than 20 years, she made a video. But this time, it was a pictorial tribute reminding the salmon people how hard they had worked, set to the music of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand And I posted it on Facebook, and I tagged all of the young women and Ernest and the chiefs who had been part of this fight and the lawyers. And I was like, you did this. be turned around. And again, in the spring, as she had for 20 years, Alex went out to count sea lice on the juvenile salmon. Salmon that were now at this beautiful, clean site. Um, and they were perfect. They were beautiful. They were, you know, sparkling silver blue. Their eyes were deep black. There was no cloudy gray film over their eyes. And again, I tagged everybody. I was like, you did this. You know, because I just really wanted people to know 
that the whole effort was worth it. Just one life in a world that keeps on pushing me around. I will stand my ground. Marine Harvest may have accepted the Broughton Agreement, but that didn't mean it was prepared to make similar deals with First Nations in other areas of the province. First Nation leaders in the Discovery Islands near Campbell River wanted the same right to determine the fate of fish farms in their area. Darren Blaney is chief of the Homalco Nation, and the 2019 agreement got his attention. When our neighbours to the north of us negotiated the uh, agreement, uh, I started wanting to push for that. I met with the province in Vancouver at the cabinet meeting, and I mentioned to them I wanted uh, the the Broughton-style agreement. I met with Marine Harvest and told them we wanted the Broughton-style agreement. I met with Greek. I met, told them we wanted the Broughton-style agreement. If you want an agreement with Hamalco. I spoke with Chief Blaney on a rocky beach in Campbell River. We walked along the beach to find a quiet spot to talk. Like Alex, Darren Blaney has been fighting against the fish farms for a long time. And he knew that without some formal power, it would be hard to negotiate with the fish farm companies. He'd learned this when he was elected chief back in 2017. That's when he discovered the agreement his predecessor had signed with Marine Harvest two years earlier. The agreement was for 30 years, and when Darren read it, he was appalled. The chief before me had um, negotiated an agreement with them, and it was a terrible agreement. It was like uh, 35000 a year. Marine Harvest was paying the First Nation $35,000 a year for the right to farm in their territory. But Homolko Nation had to report to Marine Harvest how it was spending the 35000 Meanwhile, and unlike the Broughton Archipelago deal, the Homolko Agreement did not give the nation any say in how the farms operated. They could not even make any objections. And Homolko, in that agreement, didn't even have any kind of oversight or any ability to monitor them. So it was kind of an insane agreement. As Darren examined it, he realized there was a gaping loophole. It had not been brought to the community for approval, nor had it been approved by the Ban Council. All major decisions, especially financial ones, must have a Ban Council resolution to be legal. Darren told Marine Harvest the agreement was not legal and was cancelled. The company asked for a meeting. So when Marine Harvest came to the office, I told them, you know, your agreement with Hamalco is illegal. I said it didn't come to council. Council didn't have, uh, there's no BCR that goes with it, and it's a communal right. And they agreed. But a short time after the meeting, Marine Harvest sent him a letter. And then I got a letter from them saying, we're shocked to learn you're saying our agreement wasn't legal. (laughs) There was a clause in the contract that said the First Nation couldn't challenge or speak out against Marine Harvest. But Darren wasn't about to back down. He'd taken some hard knocks in his life and learned from it. He was born in the small community of Church House in Butte Inlet along BC's remote central coast of islands. I remember uh, going with my grandfather to go get some dog salmon. We brought it home and the family comes together and works on it and prepares it for barbecuing and smoking. The winters back then were a lot longer and a lot colder, so... Being in Butte Inlet with the uh, Butte winds, it would blow sometimes up to three months. So our people had to have 
lots of stores of food and supplies to, to get through some of those times. And like so many First Nations, there was a shadow following his family. Darren Blaney is a third-generation residential school survivor. His grandfather was the first from Hamalco to go to a residential school in 1875. His father went, and Darren went. He was 12 when he left Church House to the Seychelles Residential School. It was devastating. It was, um, for me, I went to residential school and got disconnected from my culture, the lands, and the territory. Darren said he only managed to keep connected because of his grandmother's letters. My voice started changing, and my grandmother talked to me about bathing in the river, doing the bass, spiritual bass. In our language, um, when your voice changes, it's called tit kenem. And um, when you're bathing in the water, it's soho. So when you're going into the water, you, you start off by praying for the world, the planet. And um, then you pray for your community. You pray for your community. And then you pray for your family. And then you pray for yourself last because you're learning how to be of service. His grandmother wanted him to go into manhood in the traditional way. When you're praying for things, you're facing upriver so that it's coming to you. But when you're releasing stuff, you face downriver and you brush yourself off and you wash away your negativity. And if you're impatient or all those things, you wash it away, send it down the river. But now he had moved to St. Mary's Residential School on the mainland in Mission, not near a river. As my grandmother used to tell me, if I couldn't be at the river, I could just get up early in the morning, go outside, and you blow it out to the wind, let the wind take it away. So my grandmother used to write me letters while I was in residential school telling me I had to do this. The community elders also pushed him to work at keeping the language. I tried to maintain or hang on to some of my culture when I was in residential school, some of the language I would say out the words in my mind so that I didn't lose it. And some of the elders would ask me when I got home from residential school, they would say, do you know your language? They'd say to me and I would, I would, it was just always a, a work, trying to work on it, keeping it in. In the 1950s, the Canadian government decided he'd wanted the Hamalcos to move off the church house reserve. To encourage that, it quit providing money for housing. But many people stayed, and when more housing was needed, people moved in together. Community members were stripped of their fishing licenses as part of the federal government's Mifflin plan to reduce the number of fishermen, the same thing that happened to Ernest Alford's family in Alert Bay. In 1969, our people lost all of our fishing licenses, pretty much, and... Um, so that economy from fishing was gone from all the fishermen that had moved away. And so um, they, they shut the school down. And so everybody in the community scattered. That process just ripped us out of our community and church house. And we've been here now since probably 1990. And uh, it's been a big adjustment. You can see the, uh, the loss of the culture Campbell River is where the majority of the Malco now live. But Darren left for college and then worked for several years in the bush on tree spacing jobs, then moved to Vancouver and got a job as a native court worker. 
There, he helped First Nations through the court system, negotiating bail, preparing pre-sentence reports, and general hand-holding. It would be good training for when he returned to Campbell River, became a band counselor, and was elected chief for the first time in 2002. Because it was shortly after that he had his first fight with Marine Harvest over fish farms in the Himalco Territory in Church House. But that one farm... They were going to convert it to Atlantics after the Chinooks grew out. The Atlantic salmon would be in the fish farm right in front of Church House. Darren had concerns about the feces from the fish farm damaging the habitat of the red snapper and the cod. Those species are pretty territorial. They don't move around, so they, if you destroy their habitat, they have no home. Although no one lived in Church House now, it was still Hamalco territory, and Darren was defending it and the waters around it. That was our strongest case because it was right in front of our reserve. And then we had another reserve on the other side and another island in the middle. So it was a very strong case to, for us to uh, get them removed. Back in Episode 2, I talked about a government memo from 1991 that was released after a Freedom of Information request. In that memo, a fisheries and oceans veterinarian had warned there was a big risk to wild salmon from the importation of Atlantic salmon eggs for the fish farms. He said the eggs could carry disease, which would then be passed to wild salmon. But when Darren Blaney was asking for information about potential risks, he was ignored. And we'd been asking for information and asking for information, really received hardly anything. The B.C. Ministry of Agriculture gave Marine Harvest what's called a species amendment to switch to Atlantic salmon in the summer of 2004, but promised there would be consultation with the Himalco on where the fish farms would go. There was lots of back and forth about arranging a meeting, but there was never a meeting. It was December 16th. Our office was going to close for Christmas. I was still in the office about 5.30, and our office closes at 4.30. And around 5.30, this fax comes in from the province saying, we've approved the Atlantics to go into church house after all the, all the time we were consulting with them. And then, you know, they expected our office to be closed. They expected no one to be there, so they sent us this fax. The province gave the company a license on December 10th, and Marine Harvest immediately started moving smolts from their hatchery to the fish farm. We immediately applied for an injunction. By December 24th, Christmas Eve, we got our injunction. The injunction said Marine Harvest had to remove the smolts it had put into the fish farm because the community was not properly consulted about the move. Marine Harvest countered by going to court to get the injunction overturned. On January 14th of 2005, the B.C. Court of Appeal rejected the company's argument that it did not have a duty to consult the Himalco First Nation. We started meeting with Marine Harvest and negotiated them out of there, and they wanted us to relocate them to another place, and we just thought, no, all we're doing is relocating the problem. We're not helping the problem. And so we, we decided, well... We'll just push hard and got them out of there. That court decision was 2005. It took about 18 months to negotiate the farm closure. Darren lost the next election, and that 30-year agreement with Marine Harvest was signed in 2015, an agreement Darren describes as predatory 
and when he was re-elected chief in 2017, he was determined to end. Couldn't understand how he even signed an agreement like that. It was such a lopsided agreement, and Marine Harvest knew it. They, they will take where they can take, and um, they went through and contacted my council and told them I left millions on the table undermining me. They, they wrote these letters to my council. Darren says there had been no mention of more money to keep the agreement in place, no negotiation of any kind. It took a lawyer's letter to get the company to back off. So in the spring of 2020, just like Alex Morton, Darren Blaney was counting down to September. That was when Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan was expected to make her decision on closing fish farms in the Discovery Islands. That date was set by Justice Cohen in his recommendations from the 2012 inquiry. Mitigation measures should not be delayed in the absence of scientific certainty. In my view, salmon farms should not be permitted to operate unless it is clear that they pose no more than a minimal risk to Fraser River sockeye salmon. And on September 30, 2020, in consideration of research recommended in my report, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans prohibit net pen salmon farms in Discovery Islands unless the minister is satisfied that such farms pose at most a minimal risk of serious harm to the health of Fraser River sockeye. That gave Fisheries and Oceans eight years to do the research. But Fisheries and Oceans waited until the last minute to release its evaluation of minimal risk. It was released September 28, 2020. The department has completed nine peer-reviewed scientific risk assessments to determine the impact of interactions between wild Pacific salmon and pathogens from salmon farms and informed the response to Cohen Commission's Recommendation 19. The results of these assessments concluded that the transfer of these pathogens pose a minimal risk to abundance and diversity of migrating Fraser River sockeye salmon in the area. The assessments were heavily criticized, particularly from the outside experts who'd been asked to work with DFO on the evaluations. The thing that bothered me the most with these panels was going into the investigations a determination had pretty much already been made. John Waring is a biologist with more than 30 years' experience. He's worked with the Sierra Defense Fund, which is now called EcoJustice. At the time he was on the panels in 2019, he was the senior science and policy advisor with the David Suzuki Foundation. He thought DFO should have been looking at all the science for each pathogen or disease. One of the objections I had was that some of that information that is outside the frame of reference, so to speak, was not taken into consideration. It was actually like kind of brushed under the rug. Like I would have expected going into a review like that, that the papers that have been presented and prepared by the likes of the Marty Kirkuseks of the world, Alexander Martins, Christy Millers, would be front and center, but they were more often than not downplayed as being controversial in nature. The work of scientists who published in the world's most prestigious science journals was controversial? Controversial to whom? 
they didn't fit into the frame of reference that was being presented to us as experts. Those researchers, Christy Miller-Saunders, Marty Kokorsik, and Alexander Morton, did studies that showed there was likely more than a minimal risk to the wild salmon from the fish farms. John Waring gives the example of PRV, Piscine Reovirus. This disease is highly contagious and linked to heart disease in salmon. Studies have shown the PRV strain in BC is the same as the one in Norway. PRV caused large-scale death in Norwegian fish farms, and research has suggested that wild salmon, weakened by PRV, have a hard time swimming upstream to spawn. But John says DFO only did studies on juvenile fish, not the fully grown fish ready to spawn. They had a tank with uninfected fish and a tank with infected fish, but they were all juveniles. They didn't find anything, according to the researchers, that would possibly constitute a harm to the environment and, and or salmon in the wild. My question was, well, we're not talking about juvenile salmon here, necessarily. We're talking about adult salmon. John raised his concerns about the weaknesses in the DFO studies and was told his concerns were duly noted in the minutes and would be in the transcripts of the meeting. When we were in these meetings, we were told, let's reconvene after the experts have provided their input, uh, after the papers have been reviewed, and then very shortly thereafter, like within a day or two, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans came out with a determination based on that meeting. John says he looked all over the DFO site for the transcripts, and they're not there. In releasing its assessment, DFO said there was consensus within the committees that to answer Justice Cohen's question, the consensus was there was minimal risk to wild salmon from the fish farms, so no need to close fish farms in the Discovery Islands. Committee members were told not to talk to anyone outside the committee about their deliberations. John felt the committee was a sham and he was being muzzled, so he went to the media. We said, if you're going to come out with this line of communication, we are going to respond. Something I've maintained in my entire career, even with David Zuki Foundation, is putting those farms in the Discovery Islands and through that narrow bottleneck between Vancouver Island and you know, the Fraser River is the most insane place in the world to put fish farms. And here's another thing. There was also a glaring omission in DFO's report on minimal risk. There was no sea lice assessment. The scourge of both farm and wild salmon was left out. Stan Probosch was at the DFO telephone news conference as a senior scientist with Watershed Watch Stan had been asked to be on committees for some of the diseases being studied. I was involved in five of the DFO risk assessments, but my involvement in five of these sessions, I felt like I was one of the, you know, token kind of outliers in terms of the opinion around salmon farms. And the vast majority of the people there were folks that, uh, academics that, regularly worked with industry, regularly received funding to work on research projects with industry. Stan says DFO's announcement misled reporters 
and Canadians. He says there were supposed to be ten pathogens evaluated, but in the end only nine were done. Sea lice was dropped. Stan believes DFO left sea lice out because it could never write a report saying there was minimal risk to wild fish if sea lice and their devastating effects on salmon were included. He points out DFO also dumped the plan to assess the cumulative effect of the pathogens on fish swimming by the farms. It would be like getting exposed to COVID, measles, malaria, and chickenpox. Who knows what that would do to you? It would be the, the most important one <laughs> because you're adding up all the risk from all these pathogens coming from salmon farms um, and impact potentially impacting wild fish. So, of course, it's, and it would have to be the last one that's done because you'd have to integrate the risk from all the previous pathogens that you've studied. And once again, it seemed that DFO put its finger on the scale in favour of the fish farms. The only quote from Minister Bernadette Jordan written in the news release didn't give away anything about her response to her department's risk-free conclusions or how the report would affect her decision about whether or not to renew the farm's licences in December. The salmon people waited. Three months later, on December 17th, Minister Jordan announced her decision on the fish farms in the Discovery Islands. There will be no new fish added into those sites. Um, The fish that are in there are going to be allowed to grow out to a certain size where they can be harvested, uh, and then no new fish will go into the pens once those fish have been harvested. It was a striking illustration of the conflict inside the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. This interview on APTN, the Aboriginal network, was one of the only Minister Jordan gave to the media. We want to do this in an orderly way, in a fair way. Um, It's going to be a, a difficult transition, so we want to make sure that we do it right. And we will see the majority of the fish will be out of the farms by April of 2021. 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands would be phased out and gone by June 30th, 2022. Fish now in the farms could complete their growth cycle and be harvested. Nine of the 19 were already fallowed without fish. They couldn't be restocked, so the next step would be to dismantle and remove them from the water. It was clear that Minister Jordan had dismissed DFO manager's assessment on minimal risk, in favour of the opinions of First Nations. One of the things we heard was that First Nations in in the Discovery Islands, the seven First Nations there, uh, really wanted to have a say in the decision. So we spent the last few months uh, doing consultations with those First Nations, and we heard overwhelmingly that they wanted to have those fish farms removed from the area. So that is the decision we're making today, that there will be phasing out of those fish farms with no intent to renew licences in the future. This fit with what the B.C. government had done in its agreement over the Broughton, give First Nations the right to say no to fish farms. But it was a definite blow to the two companies, Maui and Surmac, operating in the Discovery Islands. Naturally, the industry was upset. Ian Roberts of Maui, formerly Marine Harvest. And then there was the latest decision by the minister just to close salmon farms in the Discovery Islands region, which to be frank with you, was cruel, was uh, unjust, and didn't allow us to make decisions that protected our fish and protected our people. 
He pointed to the DFO assessments on nine diseases, which found a minimal risk to wild salmon. Assessments, he says, fulfilled the Cohen Commission requirement. Of course it was a surprise to us when the Cohen Commission recommends science continue, when the Cohen Commission recommends that you must achieve less than minimal risk, which we did achieve that threshold, and then a decision contrary to that was made about the sites in the Discovery Island. The fish farm industry may have agreed to abide by First Nations decisions regarding fish farms in the Broughton Archipelago, but it wasn't going to accept Minister Jordan's decision in the Discovery Islands without a fight. The B.C. Salmon Farmers Association had a report repaired by RIAS Inc., a lobbyist consulting firm. Released in February of 2021, it laid out all the ways the closure of the fish farms would damage the B.C. economy. 1,500 job losses, the disappearance of more than $390 million in economic activity, $21 million of lost tax revenue. And then there were the Atlantic salmon. Almost 11 million eggs in hatcheries and salmon in ocean pens would have to be destroyed, costing the industry $170 million. The report also pointed out there would be a decrease in donations to food banks. The industry produced videos stating their case to stay, and videos of people who work in the industry scared of losing their jobs. This video was played at an online town hall put on by the Surrey Board of Trade and the BC Salmon Farmers Association. Right now, jobs are very important and we have limited jobs because of COVID. If we will not gonna have this job or this work, we will not have anything. All of us are just a few paychecks away from not knowing how we're gonna pay our bills. Bought a house. I have a family. My my boy is just five months old. It's my it's my duty to give them a good life. Everything is gonna be shattered. John Paul Fraser described how the closure of the fish farms also threatens the province's future. At the time, he was the association's executive director. We were seeing ourselves as an industry on the rise, as an opportunity, particularly for Indigenous and vulnerable communities. We produced a, a really robust economic plan. We were actually forecasting a doubling of employment by 2050, up to about 11,000 family supporting jobs. Uh, we were looking at doubling our GDP uh, from 1.6 well into the threes. We were looking at significant increases in tax revenue for government. All gone with the closure of the Discovery Island farms. Stan Probosh with Watershed Watch has been following the salmon farming industry and working on committees with the industry for years. Says he's never been able to get a breakdown of the projected job losses from the industry, despite asking many times. I don't buy their numbers because if you look on the BC Salmon Farmers website, as cut it out, it says there are approximately 7,000 total full-time equivalent positions supported by the BC salmon farming industry. So that could technically include the guy working at the Tim Hortons drive through serving a fish farmer coffee when they go to work. 
and as part of the fight, industry went to court. The three multinational companies, Maui, Cermak, and Grieg, got an injunction from the federal court to pause the minister's decision until a court ruling. For Chief Darren Blaney of Homolko First Nation in the Discovery Islands, it was just one more piece of evidence that the fish farm industry is not prepared to acknowledge Indigenous rights. When they met with us that time, their, their First Nations liaison person said, we wouldn't be here if you don't want us here. <laughs> and then, the, then the decision came and said, you want the other here, and now they're fighting us in judicial review. Darren says none of the First Nations in the Discovery Islands have the money to compete with the industry in court, and they don't want to spend their money that way. I am frustrated. I, I feel like we, we have fought the fish farms in court. I have so many other issues in my community. About this time, Alex Morton's memoir of her fight for the wild salmon was published, called Not On My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took on Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon. It went back 30 years and laid out the carelessness, obfuscation and failures of the B.C. and federal governments. She presented her evidence on how these governments failed to protect wild salmon while providing support for the Atlantic salmon farming industry. She called the fish farms feedlots, suggesting all the negative consequences of pig or chicken feedlots, disease, feces, and stress in the animals. Because the industry looked so harmless on the surface and because they had such good public relations people and because the government was so uh, encouraging of the industry, nobody wanted to hear me. This interview on the Whale Scout podcast was just one of dozens Alex gave. Here she explained how not being listened to drove her to write the book, to lay out her evidence. You've got young wild salmon coming out of their rivers, entering the ocean and entering this toxic environment. I explain it to people. Um, imagine walking your child to the infectious disease ward of a hospital on her way to school. It's exactly the dynamic that is going on here. They're about the only farmers that don't shovel their manure. They're, they're releasing tons of waste per day. It was soon on the bestseller list, and Audible made an audiobook of it. But even after the publication of her memoir, the story was still unfolding. Alex's arguments about one disease, Piscine Reovirus, or PRV, had long been dismissed by industry and some fisheries and oceans scientists. But in May of 2021, a study was released that should have put the issue to rest. These viruses kind of leave a genetic fingerprint. And if you do the analysis right, you get the answers. Gideon Mordecai is a marine biologist working at the University of British Columbia. He teamed up with Christy Miller, the geneticist who works for DFO in Nanaimo, along with a dozen more scientists to study PRV in salmon. They looked at the genetic history of the virus in both wild and farmed salmon. They wanted to find out when it arrived in B.C., and whether it was transmitted between the wild and farmed salmon. Is it moving from wild salmon to the farms, or from the farms to the wild salmon? The DFO stance is that PRV is endemic to BC. An endemic disease is a disease which is found in a population and is stable in that population. Meaning it wasn't brought in with the Atlantic salmon from Norway, but Gideon says that's not true of PRV. 
And what we found was that the closer the wild Chinook salmon were sampled to the farms, the more likely they were to be infected with the virus. So we knew the viruses on the farms and we knew wild salmon collected closer to the farms are more likely to become infected. To prove this trajectory, the scientists used gene sequencing. That's the same way COVID was investigated as it traveled and mutated from person to person. And when we sequenced the viral genome in these wild Chinook, which had virus detected close to farms, we see that they have the same viral variant that's in the farm. The study concludes that PRV came into BC in the 1980s, probably from the importation of Atlantic salmon eggs. Industry disputes that, pointing to a sample collected in 1977 from a steelhead trout. Even DFO has said the diagnosis of PRV in that fish is, quote, suspect. But DFO has a different argument for rejecting that the virus in Canada came from the imported Norwegian fish. PRV seems to cause different symptoms and diseases in different salmon species. In Atlantic salmon, PRV1 causes a disease of the heart. Meanwhile, for Chinook salmon, the virus seems to be associated with the disease called jaundice anemia. Red blood cells of the host being infected by the virus and the red blood cells rupture, they burst, and this leads to kidney and liver damage. Same virus, different disease. Still, Gideon says this same virus, different disease, has led the fish farm industry to say PRV doesn't cause disease at all. There's been some studies which have concluded that PRV does not cause disease in Chinook salmon because when they looked in the hearts, they didn't see any of these heart lesions. So this virus doesn't cause disease. But in fact, they were kind of looking at the wrong organs. Uh, (laughs) The fish farm industry insists that when the fish move from the hatchery to the open pens, they're free from disease. But Gideon says a recent study found some baby salmon are infected with PRV when they're moved. And since it's illegal to put diseased fish into the ocean, maybe all the fish should be tested for PRV before being moved. But there's a catch here. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans do not classify PRV as a disease agent. It's not, like, I want to say a legal loophole, but that's not even right. But what happens is because PRV is not a disease agent, it can be moved from the freshwater into the ocean. So both industry and DFO say PRV didn't come from Norway, and it doesn't cause disease anyway. Gideon says even if DFO doesn't accept that PRV causes disease, it's ignoring its responsibility in another area. You don't actually need proof of causation for a virus to be a disease agent to to prevent it being in the water. Um, That would come down to the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle states, even if all the evidence isn't in, government or industry should still act and do the safest thing. I I just add to that, DFO have already lost two court cases. um, They've been told that they're not regulating the virus in a precautionary manner. And, And, you know, despite that, evidence is building the virus does cause disease. So the courts have twice said that Fisheries and Oceans has a legal obligation to make sure that fish being moved into the ocean are free from disease, and DFO has not acted. Lawyer Sean Jones represented the Nomgis First Nation in the 2019 case. So why hasn't DFO responded to that more effectively? 
I think we would all like to know the answer to that definitively, but I think it goes to um, regulatory capture and dysfunction within the bureaucracy. You're really left to a, a bureaucracy that has no incentive to correct its behavior. In fact, when we look at the 2015 and the 2019 cases, DFO just turned around and put the same policy in place. Why, you might ask, can DFO ignore the courts? You and I couldn't just brush off a court ruling. Well, this is because of another catch. The decision was made in federal court. It only hears cases related to federal laws or actions by Ottawa. All the court can do is order DFO to reconsider questionable decisions. Reconsidering a decision is not the same as changing the decision. The salmon farming industry brought their case to the federal court in 2021. In April, they got an injunction to put a hold on Minister Jordan's 2020 decision to close the farms in the Discovery Islands. In October, the court hearing would decide if she had made a reasonable decision and the injunction should be lifted. Two First Nations from the Discovery Islands asked to appear and filed documents on how they would be affected if the court overturned the minister's decision. Hamoka and Tlamin First Nations had been consulted by the minister before she made her decision to close the farms. It made sense they should be part of a court case that wanted to overturn that. That's what happened here. The Crown consulted these First Nations and changed a long-standing policy quite dramatically. Any court case reversing that or ordering the minister to reconsider that decision would unnecessarily affect them. In a ruling that stunned everyone, the court refused to give First Nations standing as a party or intervener in the court. Lawyer Sean Jones says a court official was deciding who would have standing and who wouldn't. And the prothonotary, that's the title of this person, decided that since Sir Mac Maui and Grieg had not included First Nations as a party to the case, there was no reason to allow them to take part, as the pleadings didn't engage their rights. They could not fight for their own territory. First Nations with constitutionally protected rights are kept out of court. So obviously we see a very inequitable situation and it, and it underscores kind of the capricious nature of the, the courts and why many First Nations are reluctant to take some of these things on uh, at their own expense. Later, the court official changed her mind and did allow some First Nations organizations in, such as the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, but not the Hamalco and Thamin. In court, the salmon farming industry's main argument challenging the minister's decision was that it was unfair, came out of nowhere, and would cause financial hardship. Once all the evidence was in, the waiting began for the next court decision. Despite the activity in the court, many of the fish farms in the Discovery Islands were empty in the spring of 2021, and Alex went out to look at the smolts swimming by on their way to the ocean. I get concerned every juvenile salmon out migration, and right now I'm seeing a lot of good things go on here. So, you know, the young salmon going through Discovery Islands right now look beautiful. And a lot of the salmon in the Broughton look beautiful. 
the fish look nice, but what are their numbers like? Their numbers are desperately low. And um, it's interesting because people will say, oh, we saw a lot of fish today. But what they don't remember is that these these bodies of water used to have continuous schools that stretched many kilometers, several meters wide, and they just flowed past these shorelines. So when somebody goes into a bay and, oh, there's a thousand fish, um, they think it's a lot of fish. No one knew how many months it would be before the court decision. In the meantime, the B.C. Salmon Farmers Association continued its public relations campaign, tackling the one big problem it could never deny, sea lice. In November of 2021, it released another report, Sea Lice in the Discovery Islands. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm the Science and Policy Director with the B.C. Salmon Farmers. Since the Discovery Islands farm decision was taken, lots has been said, mostly in media and social media. We've taken a deeper dive into independent biological data of the area, and we've learned that the removal of salmon farms from the Discovery Islands region have not changed the low levels of sea lice on outmigrating salmon in the region. It said the data came from independent professional biological consultants in multiple regions of BC. The names of those consultants are not in the report. The contact named in the report was Brian, Brian Kingsett. By analyzing independent sampling data of almost 7,000 salmon between 2017 and 2021, overall, lice levels are low on juvenile salmon and did not change after the decreased production in the Discovery Islands. This data was the exact opposite of what Alex Morton had found, and it was not written up and published, which is what scientists do with new information. Alex responded to the report on her Facebook page. They say that independent data found sea lice levels were low last year and this year, that there's no problem with the farms. And they called me an activist. Number one, the data they are using is not independent. They paid mainstream biological consulting for it. Two, sure, I'm an activist but I've also published my science on the impact of sea lice in the top scientific journals in the world. So if the salmon farmers really don't believe my work, they should explain that to the journals, not on a website. This wasn't the first time sea lice had disappeared when fish farms closed. You might remember from episode two, as part of an experiment in 2002, several fish farms were left empty while the juvenile salmon swam by on their way to the ocean. The results were astonishing, not one louse on the salmon. But you might also remember no one wanted to repeat it, not DFO or the BC government or industry. Yet that would be what a scientist would do, repeat the experiment to find out if it was a fluke or if it showed the sea lice coming from the fish farms. At the time, Brian Riddle, who worked for DFO but was on secondment to an outside agency, said he really wasn't surprised the experiment couldn't be repeated. People just simply didn't want to acknowledge that this industry that they were supporting had a risk. There was no other source at that early spring period. It was very, very clearly the farms. In April of 2022, the federal court accepted industry's argument that the closing of the fish farms in the Discovery Islands by June of that year was going to cause extreme financial hardship to the industry. 
The court said the minister had violated the right of procedural fairness and agreed with industry that the government gave no advance warning and they were blindsided by the decision. Industry seemed to have forgotten that the decision was ordered by the Cohen Commission back in 2012. That was eight years of warning. And then there was Minister Jordan's marching orders from the Prime Minister. The Minister Bernadette Jordan has been given a mandate directly from the Prime Minister's office to work with the province of British Columbia and Indigenous people to phase out fish farms from British Columbia by 2025. That's a policy objective coming directly from the Prime Minister's office. Sean Jones is the BC lawyer who practices environmental, Indigenous and regulatory law. He says the Discovery Islands decision reveals the deep fissure between fisheries and oceans bureaucracy, the minister, and her mandate to consult with First Nations. And so the minister embarks on consultation with First Nations to make this decision. And in, an, in something that I've rarely seen, the minister met directly with those First Nations. And the First Nations, at least that I was involved with, said, you need to get these fish farms out of the water to protect our rights. Back in one meeting I attended, the minister asked the nations, do you need these fish farms out? They said, yes, we absolutely need them out. They provided submissions, 200 pages of submissions documenting the problems with DFO's risk assessments. The court's decision was devastating to First Nations and the people fighting for the wild salmon. But it wasn't the end for the government. It just meant the minister had to take into consideration the court's ruling. But in the election in the fall of 2021, Bernadette Jordan lost her seat in government. A strong advocate for wild fish was gone. Many people wondered if the scale had just tipped in favor of the fish farms. Next time on The Salmon People, the final episode, The Mandate versus The Mandarins. The Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones Production, sound engineering by Damien Kearns and Ben Ramos-Salzberg. Special thanks to Rob Boys and Aaron Cadwaller for the performance of Tom Petty in The Heartbreakers and to the Whale Scout podcast for the interview with Alex Morton. Thanks to Dave Coots for the reading of the DFO material. <laughs>